Well, we've been in Romans. We're still in chapter 2, but we're going to wrap up chapter 2 today. We're going to journey back through false security of the law briefly, and then we'll do false security of circumcision, which has been called the last bastion of the Jew, or their last fallback point that they have, and they have nothing else to stand upon. And Paul is being so kind to them, and he's warning. That's his heart. And so we're continuing in the section of Paul's letter regarding the righteous judgment of God. We have yet to get to salvation. So we have to continue to keep that theme. Now the great apostle Paul had just taken away their argument about them having the law. And he tells them that it is no good if it's not lived out in their lives. Just like us, our salvation, it's no good if it's not lived out in our lives. And they're living lives of hypocrisy. This is what he's calling out. And as a result, God's name, what does it say in the last verse? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written, as we read in verse 24 last week. So as a result, God's name is put to shame by the way that they were living in hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy, how do you define it? Well, we define it in many ways. But here's one way. Hypocrisy is the practice of engaging in the same behavior or activity for which one criticizes another or the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Pretty simple. In other words, teaching one thing and living a completely opposite lifestyle. It's like the famous zoo that claimed to have the most authentic animals transplanted from far off lands. Have you heard about this? Yeah. Original native animals. And they're saying, oh, we brought all these animals over. Come and see them. Until one day their gorilla died. But to keep up appearances and keep the attraction open, they had to come up with a quick plan. And so the zookeeper hires this man to wear this gorilla suit, fill in for the dead animal. And it was his first day on the job. And the man didn't know how to act like a gorilla very well. They, apparently they didn't train him very well. And as he tried to move convincingly, he got too close to the wall of the enclosure uh, of the lion exhibit and tripped and fell into it. And he began to scream, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. And everybody's looking like, oh my gosh, this gorilla can talk. And so the lion comes over to him and the lion says, be quiet or you're going to get us both fired. <laughs> Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is creating a false appearance. And it's a sin that's so subtle yet so dangerous, and we can fall into those traps. Why do you think the Bible tells us, may there not be many teachers of the Bible? Because the enemy attacks, and this sin attacks preachers and teachers the most. Even the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. It's dangerous because of what it manufactures. And what is that? Well, with the Jew, it created backlash on the name of God. And with the Christian, it does the same thing. It creates backlash on the name of God, and people stand back and they look at us and they begin to think, why do I want to be a Christian? They don't live any differently than I do. How are they more important? See, God's name was blasphemed by the way that they were living. We see that 
in verse 24, as we pointed out. As the Jew pointed their fingers at the blatant sinful lives of others, the Gentiles were pointing their fingers right back at them. We talked a lot about this last week. They were mocking the lives of the Jews, and they were making up many stories. They're making up many stories about them and about their religion and about their God. And so it left the Gentiles questioning, why would I want to serve a God like that? What benefit is there? With all their privileges and exemptions, yet you guys still cry and complain about how we are towards you? What about how you are towards us? We see that you lie, that you cheat, that you steal. Why should you have privilege while we have to live by other standards? Remember all those things that we pointed out last week? Remember that the Jew had their own courts and the Roman government allowed them to have their own courts. They were exempt from having to do anything on the Sabbath. They didn't have to join the military while everybody else had to. And the government bowed to them because they wanted to keep the peace. Because they had these religious zealots who were always arguing, who were always fighting against the Roman government, who wouldn't want to live in peace with them. They felt like the scepter had been taken away. Where's God? We need to take it into our own hands. We can't sit and pray and let the Lord move. We got to take it. We got to take it by force. Do you see anything like that happening in today's world? We see it all the time. So these guys were lying. They were cheating. They were stealing. They were fighting. And what kind of light is that? What kind of light is that in the world? Which was their whole purpose. And the Apostle Paul is so kind to them, pointing these things out. And in this section, it's the examination of the chosen people. Paul's reminding them of God's word. In fact, in Amos 3.2, to the Jew, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Wow, what a great statement from the Lord. He goes on, though, and says, Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Why? Because you have the most light. You should have known better. You should have done what you were called to do. Yet you didn't. Privilege increases responsibility, don't you think? It does not set it aside. The knowledge of the divine oracles gave to the Jew a standard of judgment that no other people had. And we have even more. But going back to the Jew, how much holier should their lives have been? Because they knew. Because they understand. Were the Israelites then a more righteous people than the nations around them? Not at all. In fact, they failed more miserably than those of less light and fewer privileges. The Stoics sometimes lived better than they did because they felt that it earned them some type of right. But see, what does privilege do? Privilege makes you feel like you're owed something. Oh, well, I'm God's chosen, so I can live however I want and get away with it. And that's not the way of it. See, Paul had asked four questions. And the last one in the previous verses 
is the one that's, that has so much significance. I like the King James Version in Romans 2.22. The King James Version says it this way, Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Isn't that a cool word, sacrilege? Ooh, that's a godly word. What does that mean? Sacrilege, the word translated commit sacrilege really means to traffic in idols. They were trafficking in idols. So when he's accusing them of stealing, what was happening? This was an offense that the Jew was very guilty of. And man, it sent the Gentiles off. They hated them for it. Isn't that interesting? Here are the Jew, the God's chosen people, the people of light, pointing their finger at everybody else. And the Gentiles standing back, pointing their finger right back. It's just this constant accusations going round and round. See, the Jew was to hate images, but he often acted as a go-between in disposing of idols stolen from the temples of conquered people and those ready to purchase them in other districts. So they were this go-between person. He was even charged with systematically robbing temples and then selling the images. Now, Acts 19 alludes to this when they bring Paul into the court. The town clerk of Ephesus had this in mind in Acts 19.37 where he says, For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. You see, the Jew professed hatred of idolatry and all its works, and yet they profited financially at the expense of idolaters in a thoroughly dishonest way. In other words, they robbed these temples of false idols in the name of God and then made a profit from it. And they were well known for it. Interesting. Jesus comes into the temple and turns over all the tables. It's a den of thieves. They're making profit out of God's name. Hypocrisy. And it's alive and well even today. In the Protestant church, in the Catholic church, is it any different? Think about it. Pastors, priests have special privileges granted called ecclesiastical privileges. In California, with the federal government, we register as corporations, not for profit. Yet we want to be exempt from every other cor- what every other corporation has to do. And when the government wants to come in and they want to inspect what's going on, we get all up in arms. Like, oh, they're coming up after us. Yet when they, they do that with every corporation, and then we begin to say, oh, they're coming after us. We don't want them to come in and inspect us. They have no right. And yet they do. If we want that tax exemption, they have every right. But we get all up in arms and then we want to fight. What about those exceptions to the law made in favor of the clergy in sexual harassment cases or pedophiles, pastors and priests, where the church comes together and they hide them? They don't want to stain on the name. You don't think the world sees all of this? I mean, it's on the news all the time. You see it. How many times have we heard churches trying to cover it up? 
And they run to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and they say, oh no, we're supposed to take care of things in-house. And that's not what it's saying at all about taking people to court. It's saying you're not supposed to take each other to court. You're supposed to settle those things out in trivial matters. But when it's something illegal, guess what? You're accountable, just like the rest of the world. But the world stands back and says, you see, you think you have special privileges. You hide things from us. So why would I ever want to go to church? Why would I ever want to be like you? What about the narcissistic, arrogant, unloving, so-called pastor still in the pulpits? Happens all the time. The one in the pulpit who preaches grace all day long, but everywhere else he teaches hate and he lives it out in his life. In private meetings, he says that people are stupid and dumb and they don't understand and that he has all the knowledge and their life spills out of the pulpit, out of the church into the world and it's seen and it's a poor reputation outside of the church and guess what? They have forgotten. They have forgotten what the Bible says. In 1 Timothy 3, 7, Paul, talking to this young man in the ministry, he says, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are where? Outside. Lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Romans 12, 17 through 21, when we get there, we'll look at this more in depth. But it says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, beat him. No, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What about this one? Oh, this one cuts to the quick. 2 Timothy 2, 23-26. Instructions to a pastor, to an elder, to a leader of the church. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to how many? All. Able to teach. Patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been captive by him to do his will. Be careful. I want our church to be careful and to be warned. Be careful when you go to social media and get all charged with emotion. Be careful what you're posting. And when you see a pastor on there who is angry, who wants to see people smited and killed, be careful what you're making in the comment section. I saw that not too long ago, and I read hundreds of comments, and everybody was like, yes, yes, pastor, what are we leading to? The world sits back and looks at that and says, why would I want to go to church? 
you, all you breed is hate for me. We're to save the lost. We're to reach out to the lost, not condemn. So the Jew, they're pointing their fingers at the unjust, and the unjust is pointing their fingers right back. No difference today. You see, when Christians are in disgust over a man in office who supports abortion and LGBTQ rights, the world is equally in disgust that a church that is to be humble and Christ-like supports a man who is arrogant, flamboyant, and self-righteous. And we identify with that. And then we become the church of that person rather than the church of Jesus Christ. And when a pandemic hits and government wants to come in, which it sounds like it's going to happen pretty soon, and mask wearing begins and churches are asked to shut down, and we as believers, we run to Hebrews 10.25 and we tout it and we say, we can't for... We can't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And rightfully so. The scripture is true and it's right and it should be followed. And incidentally, isn't it funny that even those who say they are Christian and don't come to church, never come to church for whatever reason. They like to stay home and and watch online or they like to stay home and do their own devotions for whatever reason. They get up and they charge that too. You can't impose on us. Well, where are you? When we fight for our spiritual rights as we should, it can leave the world in disgust. Why? Because we complain for everything and we fight against everything when we have all these special privileges. But when we're really attacked, The world stands back and, oh, you want to bring these scriptures? Oh, now you're spiritual. Now you want to quote scriptures and live appropriately. What about all the other stuff? We have allowed politics to shape our Christianity when we should let our Christianity shape our politics. Even in the church, we need a heart change. We have become so polarized. It is time to unite behind Christ. Why? Because He's coming soon. He is coming soon. In our lifetime, He is coming. And we got to take as many people as we can with us, not push them away. Many in the church think that the way that they're living and what they're doing, that they're waiting for the Lord to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. When they've got nobody tied to them, they didn't bring anybody with them. There's no fruit in their lives of their ministry. Boy, we got to get out there because time is short. Just like the Jew resting on his law, we have rested on we are the church. So get out of my way. You can't live like me. You don't have the God like I do. So forget you. God smite them. Take them out. You see, the Jews' name we talked about last week meant praise. And they were to be a light to the Gentiles. The Christian's name is Christ-like. And we are to be a light to a dark world. 
Oh, you don't think somebody would listen to this and think, oh, this guy, he's a liberal pastor. Very liberal. No, I'm a biblical pastor. Following biblical principles, what the Bible says. I read to you the scriptures. That's how we're supposed to live. That's how we're supposed to do it. We've gone inward just like the Jew. We've become exclusive. And as a result, God's name is blaspheme. You see, people don't want to come to church, not only because their hearts are hardened, but because of hypocrisy, special exemption, abused privileges that they see all over the place. And just in case you don't believe me, and you think I'm just making this up out of thin air, let me read to you something from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who says, You cannot blame people today for judging Christ and Christianity by what they see in church members. And the blindness of many Christians at this point is something I cannot understand at all. People seem to think that the masses are outside the Christian church because our evangelistic methods are not what they ought to be. That's not the answer. People are outside the church because looking at us, they say, what's the point of being Christians? Look at them. They're judging Christ by you and by me, and you cannot stop them and you cannot blame them. They say, look at those Christians. Look at them when they are all ill. Look at them when they think they're going to die. Look at them when sometimes when something goes wrong. They could talk marvelously when the sun is shining, when business is going well, and when there's no trouble in the family. But the moment anything goes wrong, they don't seem to have anything. They're even worse than many who are not Christians. Is that Christianity? And he adds, perfectly logical, perfectly fair deduction. And it's true. The world judges the salvation of God by what they see in his representatives. And that's you and me. So what do they see in your life? What do they see in my life? This is how it's always been. This is how it always will be. We have to remember that. And we each as representatives of the Lord's church must examine what hypocrisy in our lives that we deal with. And we all have it. We all have it. Those ugly things in our lives that bring hypocrisy. But we have to deal with them. For what purpose? So that we ensure we're leading people to Jesus and not pushing them away. To be Christ-like as we are supposed to be. And so, here we come to verses 25 through 29. Finally, it says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the Spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. This is the entire point that he's getting to. 
it just took us a while to get here in this chapter. The last bastion of the Jew, his last resort, his last defense, Paul breaking it all down. And what has been our major theme? Judgment, the righteous judgment of God and the reasons for it. And now that he's speaking to the Jew here, what has con- what has contributed to this righteous judgment? Their hypocrisy. But what brought on this hypocrisy? False security. False security in their lives. A false security in what? A false security in that I've got the law. God gave it to the Jew. Therefore, I am good with him. Well, it's only good if you practice it, Paul said. Well, then I've got circumcision. And Paul does the same thing here. False security. Listen, we all want security in life. Why do you think we put alarms on our homes or we sit down and we look at our retirement plan? We want security in our relationships. We want security in everything. But anything other than Christ is a false security. We can't stand on anything else. Now, Paul is not in front of this great crowd preaching his most dynamic sermon, is he? Romans 16.22 tells us who's actually writing this for the Apostle Paul. Tertius, who wrote this epistle, it says, greets you in the Lord. I, Tertius, greet you in the Lord. He's writing for Paul. See, Paul's in Corinth. I imagine him in this little room with the candlelight. And they're, you know, he's walking back and forth and back and forth and talking about and dictating this letter. I mean, brilliant mind. And as he verbalizes his thoughts of this masterpiece, can't you imagine the Apostle Paul remembering himself and how he used to be? Remembering his former lifestyle of religion and ritual and all of his false securities that he used to trust in. He's come to realize that all other ground, all of that stuff is sinking sand. Remember, he even said, I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the cross. It's Jesus Christ only and nothing else. He understands this now, and he's telling them, without Christ, judgment and eternity in hell is, guess what, is certain. That's what will happen. But he warns and he pleads. And he looks at his Jewish brothers and sisters as if looking into a mirror. Man, I know who you are. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're going through. Isn't that so important for us to remember what we were brought out of so we can minister to those same people rather than always judging? Let God do the judging. So he looks at his Jewish brothers and sisters and he's following their thought process as he breaks down their arguments. Now, have you ever known someone so well that you know their thought process? That you know what they're going to say? That you know what they're going to do? I mean, we were on this vacation, right? 15-passenger van with 12 people in it. 
I didn't have a problem with it. I was in the passenger seat, so my legs are stretched out. I had the air. You guys okay? Yeah, good. Pass up the beef jerky. It was great. But I was the passenger. I was on backup for Renee, my brother-in-law, as he's driving. And this guy, Renee, if you know Renee, like the most positive guy ever, right? It's sickening. Like he's, oh, everything's good, bro. Good. Good, brother. And it's so, Jay, he's, he's like that all the time. And so I'm asking him, are you okay to keep driving? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good. And so he goes to, as we're getting gas, he, he gets a couple of drinks and I notice that. And then I, I go to Stacy, his wife, and I go, Stacy, I go, is he okay to drive? Keep driving? Is he good? And she goes, well, let me ask you, did he buy two drinks? Yes. Okay, he's good for a while. He'll let you know. And man, that's exactly what happened. He bought two drinks. He was good. And he let me know when he was ready. And she knew him. That's what's happening. Paul knows where these people are going in their thought process. That's what happens when we're married for a while, right? Or when we're in a relationship with somebody for a while. Or friendship with somebody. We can finish each other's sentences sometimes. It's scary what Mike and I go through. Usually at the same time. So this is the Apostle Paul. He knows because he's been there. He knows because he was one of them. So he knows where they're trailing off in their mind to. And he wraps it up with circumcision. He, I know where you guys are going to go now. So it's not like he's sitting here teaching them. He's writing this letter knowing that they're going to read. So Paul means to break those chains that they don't even realize they're attached to. And what are these chains we're talking about? The chains of false security. And Paul knows because his soul used to be shackled in that same way. Now, Paul's main ministry, we know, was to the Gentiles. This was his charge. Keep your hand here or put a marker here. But let me have you turn to Acts chapter 22. I want to show you what his charge is. Acts chapter 22, verses 12 through 21, and it says this, Now it happened, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he, the Lord, said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. That's his charge. Now imagine for a moment... Jesus telling you that you would fulfill the words in Isaiah, the prophet, saying you'll be a light to the Gentiles. Here's the Apostle Paul. Amazing. You don't think that's going through his head? He knew all those scriptures. Oh, wow. It's happening. It's really happening. How humbling for Paul, don't you think? To know that he had to go minister now to those he hated that he was taught to hate all of his life. He was taught to hate them. 
man, we could breed that here in the church. But isn't that just like the Lord to send us to minister to those that we don't want to minister to? Oh, he's put that on my heart before. No, I ain't going there. I'm not going to talk to those people. Man, they're never going to listen to me. Man, if my friend Manuel would have thought that, I would have never been saved. He came and he didn't want to come. He told me he didn't want to come. And there we are working on our dune buggy, me, my dad, and some friends, and we're drinking and having a good old time and listening to music. And here comes my friend Manuel. Manuel, you want to drink? I don't drink anymore. What? Well, I mean, this guy was, you know, called him a fish. We don't have to worry about this guy. But you don't want to drink? What are you talking about? And I knew at that moment, man, if God could save this dude, he could save anybody. That's his testimony. But that changed my life. The Lord sometimes will send us to minister to those we don't want to even go to. Paul the Apostle, he wanted to preach and teach his brothers and sisters, but the Lord sent him to the Gentiles, people that he was told to hate. Paul desperately wants to teach his heritage. He takes every opportunity to do so. He's doing so here. And we don't have time to review every example. We see Paul's heart in his letters, like in Galatians chapter 2, 1 and 2, as you turn back to Romans. I'll read this. It says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me, and I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So here in this letter, he's taking the another opportunity to preach and teach to his brothers and sisters of his faith, of his nationality. And Paul, again, knows where they're headed in their minds, their last bastion. In other words, their last line of defense, the sign of circumcision. Now, the first mention of circumcision is in Genesis chapter 17 at verse 11, where God instructs Abraham to circumcise every male child in their household, including all their servants. And it was required as a visible, physical sign of the covenant between the Lord and His people. That's what it was for. And this was the key. And Paul explains it later in chapter 4. And what is this key? Faith. It's faith. Faith in the heart first. You see, all we've done today is change the Eucharist or baptism as a sign that we are saved, even in the Protestant churches now, in the Catholic church now. We've just taken what the Jew used to use, and now we say it's Christ and this. It's Christ and this. No, it's Christ and nothing. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham had faith, guess when? Before he was even circumcised. We don't have time to get into that. We're going to get into that. Paul gets into it in this book. It's fantastic. But the, the act of circumcision was just an outward sign. In other words, his heart was right before he fulfilled the outward sign. That's why today when we accept Christ, 
one of the next things we do is we have baptism to reflect the inner change, to show that we've died with Christ and we've raised again with Him. But it doesn't make us saved. Faith in Jesus Christ makes us saved. This is where He's going. Jeremiah even shares this fact about faith in the heart about circumcision. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Whoa, what are you talking about? Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart, he says. They should have known. These Jews should have known what was already said. The Jews were commanded to do this when? On the eighth day after birth. We remember Jesus being taken in. Simeon's there. Says, oh, I can die now. Here's the salvation. Jesus was fulfilling the law. And it signified their responsibility to serve as the holy people whom God had called as his special servants in the midst of a pagan world. This was to remind them of that. This is who you are called to be. Now go carry it out. Be a light. Do the work of ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. But what did it become? I'll tell you. It quickly became a badge of their spiritual and national superiority, as it often does. We take good things of God, and we make them into something very bad for ourselves. Why? Because we get involved. We get involved. That's why God says, hey, when you build these altars in the Old Testament, don't take a chisel, don't do anything. Take the stone, set it up, because I don't want you carving any images. And yet we take and we get our grubby hands all over everything, and we mess it all up. That's what was happening. That's what we do today. It was a practice that fostered a spirit of exclusivism instead of missionary zeal, which it was supposed to do. They were to reach out to other nations as God intended, but it, came a, it became a source of hate and exclusivity. They believed circumcision somehow secured their salvation. In fact, Rabbi... Menachem, I believe, in his commentary on the book of Moses, wrote this. Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. Another said, circumcision saves from hell. The Midrash Tilium says, God swore to Abraham that no one who is circumcised should be sent to hell. This is what they believed. It's all about this right and so what does that produce in somebody? Complacency. And it produces, I don't care how I live. doesn't matter. And then we're not a representative of Christ. In fact, it goes further. There was said to be this daily prayer of strict Jewish males that says, it was to thank God that he was neither a woman, a Samaritan, nor a Gentile. That's how their view was. 
Gentiles became known as the uncircumcised. It became a term of disrespect. It implied that non-Jewish people were outside of the circle of God's love. It can never happen for them. All they are is more fuel for the fire of hell. That's what they thought. That's what they thought. Even today, the Bible talks about sons of disobedience. Who are these sons of disobedience? The non-believer? And we can look at the non-believer just as a Jew looked at the Gentile. We look at the, at the non-believers. We have this attitude that I have Christ and you don't. Na, 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 na. <laughs> you can never have him. I don't want you to have him. In fact, I want to be like Jonah. I don't want you to be saved. I'm never going to go to your land. But God has a way of working on our hearts. This attitude, if you think about it, was so embedded in the Jews' mind that when Christ came, there was confusion. You mean, I don't have to do anything? I don't have, there's nothing I need to do. Jesus died, and guess what? His one drop of blood would have saved, but how much did Jesus spill? All of it. That's the weight of sin. Think about that. Spilled it all. You mean there's nothing that I have to do? There's confusion. And so the Judaizers were like, no, no, no. It's Jesus, yes, but circumcision too. You have to have both. Can't be saved if you don't have both. And so what's it like today? Yes, there's Jesus Christ. You're saved. But you also have to be Abiding in Christ. Wait, what? No, it's a result. The abiding is a result of your love for Christ. You will then naturally, as a born-again Christian, want to do those things for Christ. Abiding does not prove that I'm saved. There's a lot of people that are obedient to what the Word of God says that aren't even saved. So that proves nothing. That proves nothing. It's the change of the heart. It's born again in Jesus Christ, which the Apostle Paul in the future, in the book of Romans, we will get into. So those listening, don't sit back and go, whoa, 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 this guy, he's so liberal. No, we're going to get to that. We're just teaching this part. We'll get to all those other things that will bring it all together. But don't you be fooled. It's Jesus Christ only. Jesus only, and don't let anybody ever tell you anything different. So this attitude so embedded, Judaizers taught differently. In fact, there was even a council held. Do you remember that? A council in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem council. But this was a big problem. And so they all got together. Peter's there. All the big guys are there making this decision. And they decide, no, no, you don't need to be circumcised. It's just all about Jesus. That's what they decided. But even after this council in Jerusalem, it's so embedded in them, Peter, who's a major part of this council, still had an issue with it. In Galatians 2, 11-13, we see the Apostle Paul address it. And it says, Now when Peter 
had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with hypocrisy. So embedded in their lives that they still dealt with it even while they were believers. Isn't that interesting? You still deal with stuff as a believer. Not everything's perfect. We're in sinful bodies. And there's some things that are so embedded in us sometimes it takes that much longer to get out of us. We have this innate desire to do things on our own. We want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's what we are in the United States. And sometimes we carry that over into our own spiritual lives. But we can't do it on our own. We can't. It's impossible. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. He said it himself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But by me in circumcision? But by me in baptism? But by me in the Eucharist? But by me in whatever? No, nothing. Nothing. There is now therefore no condemnation for who? Those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe it with all their inner being in their heart and who confess it with their mouth. Here Paul is linking circumcision with the law of Moses, and he points out that it's only valid as a sign when it's combined with a life of obedience. And when you say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and you truly are, what will your life reflect? Obedience in the Lord. Will you fail? Yeah, absolutely. You will fail. But are you consistent? Do you keep getting up? Do you keep going? Do you keep following the Lord? Do you break? Do you break like Thomas? You know, Thomas is a good representation of what born again looks like. He has all these doubts. I'm not going to believe Jesus is raised from the dead until I see all these things in his hands and his side. And what happens when Jesus presents himself? He drops to the floor and he says, my Lord and my God. Man, that is a born-again Christian. Does sin make you do that? If sin makes you do that, then you can trust that you're a believer. You can trust it because His Spirit bearing witness with your spirit. Circumcision, it has only value if you're practicing the law. Conversely, if you break the law, which they did, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. In the Greek, the second part of verse 25, as we read, is interesting. It says, if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become a foreskin. Gross. In other words, a Jewish lawbreaker is just like a Gentile lawbreaker. The Jew's right of circumcision then counts for nothing if you're not being obedient, if you're not living it out. This is their last bastion of the Jew, and it's obliterated. It is grace or it is nothing. It's through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
and faith is just the instrument. Jesus is actual salvation, Him and Him alone. This is where we're headed in this book as we continue on in our journey. But before salvation can come, what needs to take place as we've been talking about? Repentance. Repentance must come first. That's why he's talking about judgment first, because that will lead to repentance. This is why we're being stripped of every prejudice, every preconceived idea. The Apostle Paul is breaking it down to the Jew first and then to who? To the Gentile, to you and to me, all of us. And we have to examine where we stand and what we believe. And I like what E.M. Blakelock sums it all up in these words as we close. It says, he writes, No outward formality, no ritual of worship, no religious attitudes or practice of church observance, no form or ceremony, no membership of organization or system, no right of birth, nothing devised by human beings can replace the true experience of Christ in rebirth and salvation, genuine commitment to Him, and continued practice of His presence. It's Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who died on the cross for us, or it is nothing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your reminders. I feel personally that, Lord, we have been put in the deep end. We're at the bottom of the pool, and we need to come up for air in chapter 3, Lord. Oh, man, I can't wait. As we begin to see the salvation and come up out of the water, Lord, and we see the sunshine, and we see the air, and we get to breathe. But we understand, Lord, that as we sit here today and these words are being taught, for years to come, as it's on the internet, on our website, that those, Lord, who need to hear about repentance, it is our desire, Lord, that they would see these things and realize to themselves that there is nothing else that can save but you, Jesus. And what a great reminder, Lord, for us as believers in you, that we are to be a light to a dark world. It is not ours to judge. That is never put in our hands. We are to judge certain things in this world, yes. But to judge who is saved and who is not is not ours. That's only yours, God. And help us not to put our hands all over it. But may it be our heart's desire, Lord, to see the lost saved and to live out your word in our lives, Father. I pray, Father, for these wonderful people, Lord, that you have brought here. I'm so grateful. And I pray for their week, Lord. I pray for their day. And Lord, you only give us one day at a time. Our future is in your hand. But through your providence, Lord, may you position and move us exactly where you want us to be. And Lord, may we minister wherever we're at. Father, thank you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.